in, what was it, 2004, a significant and memorable sporting controversy hit the headlines in the United Kingdom. Uh, the Manchester United and England footballer Rio Ferdinand, he was accused of being a drugs cheat. Uh, accusations that would go on to prove very costly for uh, Mr. Ferdinand's career. Now, in reality, it turns out that there weren't really any sort of accusations of drug taking against Rio Ferdinand. Yes, this guy, he sort of went on to get a pretty hefty ban, uh, but really it was much more about incompetence, you know, missing drugs tests rather than actual drug taking. But surely the, the, the most interesting aspect of the whole episode was how well Rio Ferdinand came out of it all. Do you know what I mean? Remember what it was like? Like as soon as the news broke of what had happened, like all the sort of media outlets and all the newspapers, they kind of jump on this, you know, they're trying to investigate Rio Ferdinand's life, trying to dig up a little bit more dirt, weren't they? And what did they find? Nothing, really. What they found was that Rio Ferdinand seemed to be a pretty good guy. You know, he was a, a charity man. He was a guy who was sort of visiting hospitals and working with young people. They found out that. They found out also that he was a family man. You know, a man who was dedicated to his kids, dedicated to his wife. Do you see the point? Here were some negative, really often false accusations against man, but what was revealed as those things were scrutinized was actually this man's honor and this man's goodness. Why on earth begin a sermon there? I can't imagine there's many sermons that I've preached, certainly, that begin with real Ferdinand. You know, why begin there? Friends, do you see that that's what we're dealing with this morning here, isn't it? Like here in Mark chapter 3, what we see is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he is accused, isn't he? And he's accused, he's facing accusations of, you know, against his character. Accusations against his practice. But friends, get this. What we're going to see this morning as we look at these things... In the same way as in our illustration, is that it's actually the goodness, the purity, the righteousness of this man, of Jesus Christ, that comes to the fore. So, with these introductory points in our minds, friends, I would ask you to do this. If you've got a Bible there, to turn back with me, to have it open, to turn back to Mark chapter 3, and what is it, verse 20, to 30. And I'll give you the, the headings of the sermon as, as you look up those verses. This morning, God willing, we'll consider three things. We'll think about the rejection by family, the rejection by the religious leaders, and then we'll consider the rejection of the Holy Spirit. The rejection by family, you got it? The rejection by religious leaders. And then the rejection of the Holy Spirit. So, let's think about the first of those. Let's see what we learn here about rejection by family. Okay. Um, were you at LCPC uh, last uh, Sunday morning? Or not, if you were, 
you'll remember where we left Jesus. Remember that Jesus was up a, a, a mountainside? Do you remember that from last week? That he had just identified and he had just chosen his 12 apostles. What, what we see when we go into this section here is actually something of a return. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what happens here? Jesus not only returns home to Capernaum, but what he does is kind of return to the multitudes. Like what we learn here is that there's now masses and masses of people once again, and they're all kind of descending upon Jesus to the extent, to the extent, do you see what, what we've got here? We read that neither he, Jesus, nor his disciples were even able to eat. Okay. Now, my father, in his house in Inverness, uh, has got a sign on the back door of his house. And it says, I can't remember exactly, it says something like this. It says, uh, all friends, welcome here. Family, only by appointment. Okay, that tells you a lot, I guess. But it is here, Jesus' family that I want us to think about. Jesus' family. I mean, like, how do they react to this? Like, they too have, have heard that Jesus has gone back to Capernaum. Like, they too have, have heard that Jesus is now the center of attention, that he is, he is a healing peace, proclaiming this, the kingdom of God. And they too, they, they, they see that Jesus is so enthused by all of this, so enthused by his ministry that, that he is now not even eating. And do you see this? How do they respond to this? What is their conclusion? Do you see it in verse 21? Remember, this is Jesus' family. Jesus' family. What do they conclude? They conclude that he must have lost his mind. His family conclude that Jesus has gone insane. Now, friends, I think even in, in that there, what we've got in front of us this morning, there is a lesson for us, isn't there? Especially if you think about the context from last week, the context of discipleship. Do you see it? Think about it. Isn't it amazing that if Jesus' religious fervor can be mistaken for insanity, if Jesus' religious zeal can be mistaken for insanity, then surely as his followers, maybe you and I should expect the same, shouldn't we? And isn't that what is happening here in the United Kingdom today? I mean, isn't that the case? When we think about British society's view of you and me and of biblical Christianity. I mean, what does society think of us in here this morning? I mean, what is society's view of Christianity? Isn't it, oh well, you're allowed to be Christians. You are. You can be Christians so long as in no way whatsoever are you even slightly enthusiastic about Jesus. Isn't that it? Isn't that what we face? Isn't it, you know, you're allowed to be, you're allowed to be a Christian so long as we don't have to hear about it. I mean, so long as you don't actually believe what the Bible teaches. I mean, if you were to do that, then our attitude is going to change towards you and, and we are now going to view you as of unsound mind. We are going to view you as being dangerously imbalanced. Is that not what you face? But wait a minute, I'll tell you what. 
Perhaps what we should do here is just narrow down the focus of this just a little bit more. Do you see what I mean? Like, who is it exactly that is accusing Jesus here of being mad? Is it society? I mean, is it the general public? It's not. They can't get enough of Jesus at this point. Who is it? It's his family. I mean, it's it's the people who are closest to Jesus. It's his nearest and dearest, isn't it? So friends, this morning, I have to ask you this. Does that sound all too familiar to you? You know, have you come in here this morning, and as a Christian, are you under pressure from those closest to you? Does that sound about right? I mean, is it your family? And is it your friends that are most antagonistic to your faith? Is it they, just like it was with Jesus, is it they, the ones closest to you who are trying, what do they try and do here? Ah, trying to seize you, trying to stop you, trying to silence your zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. Is, is right, friends, do you see the message from God in Scripture? Do not give up. I mean, do not let even those closest to you in any way diminish the passion that you've got for the gospel. I mean, ask yourself this. I mean, is that what Jesus does? You know, he faces that same opposition here. Is that what Jesus does? No, it's not, is it? I mean, what we are going to see as we work our way through the book of Mark is Jesus graciously, consistently continue. Continue with a zeal for, for his Father's name. Isn't that the case? Isn't that? Right? And then think about this. What happens in the book of Mark? Like, Jesus continues with his zeal, and what happens? Like, who's the problem here? What am I saying? I'm saying it's Jesus' family. But more, wait, more specifically, look at verse 31. Who's the problem here? Jesus' mother and brothers? Now, wait a minute, what happens to them? I'm serious. I mean, what, what happens to his mother? Jesus continues in his zeal. And this lack of understanding that Mary seems to display here, it gets utterly transformed. And what, what happens with her? She goes from someone who is accusing Jesus of madness here, and she goes to being someone who is standing by Jesus at the cross. Isn't that awesome? And what about his brothers? What about, what about James? What happens? Isn't it the same? He displays this misunderstanding here. And what happens with James? Jesus continues in his zeal. James goes from accusing Christ to writing a New Testament epistle about Christ. He goes from accusing him of madness to what happens with James? He goes on to die. He goes on to become a martyr for Jesus. Friends, do you see the point? Let us not be put off by those closest to us. Let us continue in this passion and zeal for Jesus. And let us pray that by God's grace, that zeal might become infectious. Isn't that what we want to see? That such is their fervor for Jesus. That others too might soon be counted mad and mad for the honour of Christ.
So we see here something of the rejection by family. Okay, let's move on into this uh, section. Secondly, let's consider the rejection by religious leaders. The rejection by religious leaders. So we've seen um, this accusation from, from those who are closest to Jesus. Almost immediately, do you see what we are met with in this section? We find Jesus face another attack. Do you see? There is this second accusation against Jesus. Um, now, let's think about this. I want you to notice from where this accusation comes. So do you see verse 22? If you look at verse 22. So it's not from family this time, is it? We see it's from the teachers of the law or the scribes. So this time it's the teachers of the law or the scribes that are accusing Jesus. And you see that this is a bit different, isn't it? to what we've seen before. Like we've seen a lot of opposition to Jesus from the scribes in Mark's Gospel in the opening chapters. And every time, it's been from the local leadership, the guys in Capernaum, you know, the local boards. Those are the ones who have been accusing Jesus. You see that that's slightly different, isn't it? What we seem to have here is a group of religious leaders, maybe the elite that come down from Jerusalem. Maybe they're wanting to find out a little bit more about this guy, Jesus, that's attracting so much attention. So there's a serious group of guys here. It's the scribes, the teachers of the law. Do you see what it is that these men say about our Lord? It's the same verse. It's verse 22. His family have accused him of being mad. These men accuse Jesus of being evil. Isn't that it? Jesus being evil. I mean, they're saying here, aren't I mean, you can see what they're saying. They're saying that these uh, exorcisms of wicked spirits, these healings, they're saying that these are evidence that, that, that Jesus is himself possessed. These things are, they are evidence that he league with the devil. And I'm sure you would agree with me at this point. That's a fairly major accusation to say about anyone, isn't it? That you are in league with the devil himself. So what I want to do is to think about, well, wait a minute, how does Jesus deal with this? How does Jesus respond to this accusation? And I'll say this just now, the boys and girls better listen up. Because I think that you've... I'm going to answer one of the questions on your worksheet just now, okay? So I think I've asked you... Eyes down. Suddenly the colouring stops for some people, I think. And uh, I think I've asked you this, boys and girls. How does Jesus respond to the accusation that he is working with Satan? Now, you need two answers for your worksheet. So you better listen very carefully. Jesus disproves... It's a long word. Disproves the allegation. And then Jesus goes on to counter the allegation. So he disproves the allegation and he counters the allegation. So everyone, I mean, how, how is it here that, that Jesus disproves this allegation that he is working with Satan? Well, 
the nation of Syria has been in the news an awful lot in recent years, isn't it? Um, it's a country, it's a nation that is war-torn, it's going through a, a torrid and an awful time. Um, recently, there was a report released, a really in-depth report into the financial situation in the country. And it's not going to surprise anyone to know or learn that uh, the financial situation of Syria isn't the best at the moment. And it's, you know, it's absolutely dying. Now, what has happened is that the civil war, the infighting in that country, it has had a catastrophic effect on the financial situation. So, the civil war, the infighting, has had a catastrophic effect. Wait a minute, do you see that that there is the argument that Jesus is making here? Do you see that? Like, these scribes here are accusing him of working with Satan. And he shows them just how ludicrous that is. How could Jesus be working against Satan and exercising these demons and at the same time be working with Satan? That doesn't make any sense, does it? That would be the sort of infighting. That would be the sort of civil war that would bring the powers of darkness to the ground. But before we go on, I wonder, do you see the lesson that's here for our congregation this morning? I mean, what is it that we're confronted with there? We're confronted with the biblical truth that spiritual strength comes from unity. And what's Jesus saying there? He's saying a divided spiritual power, it falls. And friends, I would ask you this week to really meditate upon that and to pray about it and to think about this that every single wicked thought that you have about people in your congregation and every single wicked word that we say about our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in London City Presbyterian Church what does that do these wicked words and thoughts what does it do it weakens us isn't that it It weakens the witness. It weakens the work of our church. So we see that Jesus disproves this allegation that he's working with Satan. How could he be working with Satan when he's exercising these demons? What did I say to the kids? It's the second thing. He also counters this allegation. So how does Jesus counter this allegation? Um, This week I was uh, reliving my youth a little bit, just a little bit. Uh, I watched just a short clip from one of uh, my favourite films that I had when I was a kid, uh, Beverly Hills Cop. You know, I, I can't remember which Beverly Hills Cop. It doesn't matter. They're all so good. It doesn't matter. But it struck me, I was just watching this clip, that sort of baddies in the 80s, they all had the same strategy, didn't they? Like if you were a baddie in the 80s, and you were wanting to rob a factory or something. What did you do? It's the same in all of these films. What the baddies would do, first of all, is sort of sneak in and they would tie up uh, the security guards, wouldn't they? And then that would leave them and their friends free to sort of rob the factory. Same plot in so many of those, those films. Isn't that the idea? But isn't that the, the imagery that we've got here? Like Jesus has 
shown these scribes that no, he is not working with Satan. Now what does he do? Now he shows them that he is actually working against Satan. And how does he do it? Look at verse 27. Listen to this. I'll read it out. You can follow along if you want. Verse 27. Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless what? Unless he first ties up the strong man. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Do you see the argument? He's saying, how could I steal? How could I exercise these demons away from Satan, the strong man? How could I do that? If I had not first come and bound and tied the powers of darkness. And I sincerely think in light of what has just happened in Paris. I think that you and I should cherish what we are seeing there. Why? Because we are being shown there the very purpose that the Lord Jesus has come into the world. Why did he come? He had come to defeat wickedness. The Lord had come to defeat evil. That he had begun to bind Satan as he resisted the temptations in the wilderness. That he would tie those ropes tighter and tighter every time our Lord proclaimed the gospel. That he would go on to defeat Satan at the cross of Calvary. That as these Roman soldiers bound Jesus, what were they doing? The powers of wickedness, the powers of darkness were they themselves being constrained. Our Lord had come. Why? To see all of the consequences and all of the powers of wickedness forever and ever and ever destroyed. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it marvelous? Do you see what we've got here? Through, think of the start of the sermon. Through a negative accusation against Jesus, we are seeing here much more clearly the very, very victory of Jesus. What did he come to do? He had come to see the strong man bound. Evil would be destroyed. So we see the rejection by the religious leaders. Thirdly and lastly, let's consider the rejection of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are a people who uh, love a mystery. I've said this from the pulpit before. Uh, I was looking at it and uh, uh, mystery novels are always at the kind of top of the best-selling uh, list. And, uh, you know, mystery TV dramas are always amongst the most watched. We love a good mystery, don't we? Now, from a biblical perspective. Uh, you don't get much more sort of mysterious than the way this section of scripture ends. Is that not the case? Have we not heard that before? Do you see what Jesus says at the end here? Like he speaks about a, an offense that is just so vile and so absolutely abhorrent that God cannot and will not overlook that. He speaks of an unforgivable sin. Something that Jesus calls here blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Man alive. We are on intimidating ground here, are we not? 
an unforgivable sin? What does this mean? Surely we have to ask that. What does this mean? Well, I wonder, you notice this. Mark does something different to some of the other gospel writers here. What Mark does is he ties the unforgivable sin to what's just happened. Now he ties this, think about that, he ties this unforgivable sin to the opposition that he's just, that Jesus has just faced from the, the scribes. Do you see how that helps us? Like, what were those guys doing? Those guys were, those guys were incredibly hardened to Christ, were they not? Weren't they? Like they had been shown by God something of the glory of Jesus Christ there and then. And what was their reaction to that? Did they just reject it? They didn't just reject it, did they? They interpreted Christ and his actions. They interpreted that as evil. Do you see what this teaches us? Do you see what this forgivable sin is, friends? It is a decision of our hearts. It is not merely nor simply unbelief. It is more than that. It is an an intentional decision to reject God when he comes to a person in grace. It is a decision. If If we do that... If we resolve to reject the Holy Spirit of God when He, when He comes to us, if we continue to resolve to reject the Holy Spirit, that there is a sin, and it is a sin eternally unforgivable. But aren't we perhaps in danger of overlooking something here? I always think that with this portion of scripture. You know, we love a good mystery, don't we? So what do we do? We focus in the mystery. Like we focus on this. Oh, what's the unforgivable sin? Do you see the danger? The danger is that we miss what else Jesus says here. And I'm telling you, it is glorious. So let's not do that this morning. So let's close with this. Look at what else Jesus says in verse 28. Oh, it is incredible. He says, without one exception. Without one exception, what does he say? All sin and all blasphemy. It is open to the forgiveness of God in Christ. Isn't that awesome? Without one exception, all sin, all sin can be forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what do you expect to happen next? You know, all sin can be forgiven by Christ, surely we're expecting an altar call or something like that, you know, a big, grand appeal. Well, yeah, maybe. You know, if you are someone who's come into the church this morning, and if you've come in here as someone who is not born again and you're not a Christian, I'm asking you this morning, do you see what is on offer in the gospel? Do you see it? God says to you this morning that your sin, your sin, regardless of what that is, your sin can be forgiven in Christ. Isn't that marvelous? But I don't want to end there. I want to ask you this. What are we just about to do? What's the next part of the service? We're going to baptize Mary Cordelia. So at this point here, I need to speak to you, the Christian the member of this church. And I need to remind you of your 
responsibility towards Lady Cordelia. Do you see what that responsibility is? You and I, we need to teach her this. We need to teach this little girl that all sin, all sin can be forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I need to ask you this morning, will you do that? Will you teach her, as Mary Cordelia grows up in the life of this congregation, will you teach her that all sin, sins of youth and sins of old age and sins of word and thought and sins of deed and sins that are really known to us and play in our minds and sins that are not known to us, that all sin, all sin can be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you teach her that? More than that, will you teach her how that glorious truth is possible? Will you resolve to teach her about Jesus? That because Jesus was accused, and accused of what? Because he was accused of blasphemy. Because of that, will you teach her that Mary Cordelia need never, ever, ever herself face the accusations of Satan? Will you, under the Presbyterian Church, will you teach Mary Cordelia that? I think as we read these verses in Mark chapter 3, as we think about the victory of Jesus, what we realize is that we have got news for this little girl when she grows up, don't we? What sort of news is it? Christ shall win the victory. The powers of evil will be forever destroyed. The strong man will be bound. What sort of news do we have for her? We have good news. Let's pray.